0: Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling, back with you after some recording equipment got misplaced by a major U.S. airline. Uh, Any guesses as to who are certainly welcome, but on this week's episode, we're pleased to be joined by Richard Jones. Chief Revenue Officer at Wonderkind. He's going to talk about some spending shifts or potential spending shifts in terms of advertising for retailers in the year ahead and different ways in which retailers may choose to leverage social media or maybe even not leverage social media as it pertains to to attracting customers in news we'll take a look at albertson's latest numbers and we'll look ahead to two major retailers that appear to be on the verge of bankruptcy maybe one a little bit closer to bankruptcy than the other a reminder that you can check us out on social media at retail podcast on both instagram and twitter i recently got back from canada so posted a few pictures from there or rather late and posted a few of my pictures from there and as always we thank him for helping out behind the scenes all right let's dig into albertsons as they released earnings information on january 10th and there wasn't a lot of information regarding the merger that was to be expected and also by design in fact there was no analyst q and a as a result of the pending merger and because they're unable to really speak about some of the things going on back behind the scenes But some of their information we found to indicate a definite positive for the grocer, mainly in terms of loyalty program members. They experienced a larger-than-expected bump in their loyalty program members, which I think was notable. And their comps managed to keep pace and then some with inflation, despite the fact that they're not making quite as many price investments as the likes of Walmart or Kroger. Now, as far as their raw numbers are concerned, Albertson's sported comps that were up 7.9%. This was partially a function of stronger digital sales, which were up 33%, although in grocery, it's very difficult to parse out those digital sales from actual organic growth instead of cannibalized sales from in-store. The question always can be asked, are those digital sales simply prior in-store customers that are spending through a different channel, or are they brand new customers that were attracted specifically because of that digital channel in any case their adjusted net income came in well above analyst expectations 87 cents per share versus 63 cents expected per share they benefited from running larger margins than expected especially with inflationary impacts a year over year margin decrease of just 47 basis points when you exclude fuel And that year-over-year margin decrease again, a little bit less than some of those other retailers out there have been reporting, particularly in grocery, as we do see a lot of grocers making price investments. And it doesn't seem like the price investments have necessarily been there for Albertsons as a chain, both anecdotally and from in-store evidence and from bottom-line evidence. Some of the pressure points that Albertsons faced in the quarter were expected. They said, hey, product costs increased. Well, we knew that was going to happen. Shrink increased as well. Also something that's been pretty typical for most retailers. But they did say that supply chain costs were rising as well. And something we've talked about recently is that retailers have experienced declines in supply chain costs as a result of better fuel prices, but also a little bit more stability in terms of staffing their supply chain. Albertsons didn't apparently see any benefit from that in the most recent quarter. And some of the other negative points for Albertsons, or some of the other pressure points for Albertsons, they haven't necessarily been top of mind for other grocers, but they do make sense, like administering fewer COVID vaccines and therefore collecting fewer reimbursements. On that front. So, all of those things supply chain, COVID vaccines going down, shrink increasing, they negatively impacted that margin, but those negatives were mitigated somewhat by increases in other ways. For example, they've been able to leverage picking and delivery costs as a result of increases in digital sales. So, something where they're seeing more digital sales and therefore it's becoming more efficient for those pickers on a per store basis to pull those items which means that margins increase on digital sales, which we all know, margins usually pretty low, if not negative on digital sales for retailers. Additionally, while Albertson saw a decrease in vaccine revenue, they've seen a noted uptick in sales of COVID at home test kits, and that was an uptick that continued into the most recent quarter for them and while we talk about gross margin albertson's was actually able to reduce selling general and administrative expenses by 40 basis points year over year and 29 basis points when you exclude fuel the company claimed that ongoing productivity initiatives were part of the benefit here and that's similar language it's basically used by corporations as a catch-all that's something that ceo vivek shankaran said in his prepared remarks that hey All of these investments that we've seen, they're having a benefit. Didn't really get into specifics, but sales leverage was the main thing that was credited. And when you see comp increases to this degree, especially when rent increases aren't necessarily happening for an Albertsons company that's signing long-term 20 to 25 years, that is certainly going to help those selling general and administrative expenses. On the other side, wage rate increases, digital investments And the expected merger-related costs with that attempted merger with Kroger, those all provided a negative counterbalance to those positives in selling general and administrative expenses. But overall, you have an atmosphere where gross margin went down less than expected. Selling general and administrative expenses actually looked better in prior quarters. And so that's what produces that profitability that probably analyst expectations on the whole during this past quarter, but as teased in the intro to this story, it was really their loyalty member increase that caught our eye. Albertsons, like their competitor and now merger partner Kroger, they're known as having a fairly mature loyalty program, and therefore they're only seeing modest increases, generally speaking. But in their third quarter, they saw a year-over-year increase in loyalty members by a whopping and that brought the number of loyalty members in their system to 33 million at the end of the quarter. Again, no conference call due to the impending merger, so couldn't get clarification on this. But still for them, this is the second straight quarter of a double-digit jump and that came after just marginal gains in prior quarters. And what's interesting here is that it doesn't necessarily align with the relaunch of their loyalty program that happened in August Of 2021. You would understand certainly if maybe in the first quarter of 2022 or the third and fourth quarters of 2021, you see that jump because of the relaunch of that loyalty program. But here, if it was the relaunch that drove more people to the loyalty program, it's certainly a delayed impact by about nine months in time. And I think it's probably more likely that this speaks to the deal seeking nature of customers. Maybe those customers are being enticed by the typical loyalty deals that you see in-store enticed to download the app, give their information to become loyalty members because of the steep discounts. And again, when you have a retailer that's maybe not investing on price as much as the likes of Walmart and Kroger, those deals in-store are going to look even more enticing to the customer that may be more cost-conscious now than ever before. Perhaps that's what's driving these double-digit year-over-year surges in loyalty volume. And I think it's very important to note this, especially ahead of whatever might come out of these merger talks with Kroger, the fact that Albertsons is building out their platform. And it's something to keep in mind, too, if, let's say, the merger doesn't go through, might be setting up Albertsons for longer term successes potentially just knowing that they've got 33 million customers now in their loyalty program where this number was about 28 million just a couple of years ago now as we continue to look at the dynamics of their loyalty program in april 2022 their ceo shankaran said on their fourth quarter earnings call that they were increasing their focus on the program itself again this came after their relaunch in august of 2021 But what was interesting about this focus, because again, we're trying to look and see reasons for this double-digit increase, that focus that they had that they announced back in the fourth quarter or after the fourth quarter of 2021, that wasn't on adding new members. Much of what was discussed on that call was instead about getting loyalty customers, their existing ones, so the under 30 million that they already had in their queue, to interact with them more. And this included digital initiatives in-store as well. They focused, in fact, a little over $2 billion in 2022 on retention initiatives. So not attraction initiatives for these new customers, but retaining the loyalty members that were around. And certainly this can help the overall number of loyalty members there if you have some people that aren't active or some people that cancel their loyalty program membership. But overall, it seems like the retention initiatives have been working. Their focus on holding those customers that they attracted during the pandemic also seems to be working. And when you look holistically at their organization, they've added on average about 1 million new loyalty members per quarter, which is a notable jump for any grocery chain. So I think this is, again, an interesting dynamic that's playing out for Albertsons in terms of their loyalty program. The fact that they are adding so many new members on a quarter-by-quarter basis, and they don't seem to be doing it necessarily solely through these retention initiatives. New customers are being attracted to the loyalty program, despite that not being, again, a focus of the company as a whole, or at least a main focus of the company as a whole. So kudos to Albertsons for a solid quarter, and we'll continue to look at any new information that might shake out regarding the merger. And again, this information has been Limited to come by, but we knew that there would be some potential lawsuits and potential arguments against the merger by various attorneys general. That's something that certainly has played out and will continue to impact the bottom line at Albertsons as they go and end up incurring these legal costs. Well, that'll do it for our first segment here. Coming up after this break, again, we'll be joined by Richard Jones, Chief Revenue Officer at Wonderkind. We'll talk a little bit about retail marketing in 2023, how retailers may change the way they market, different focuses that retailers might have going into the year, why social media may or may not play as large of a role as previously expected, and we'll also focus on customer loyalty programs, something we talked about a lot with Albertsons, what an effective loyalty program looks like beyond just price discounts in the year ahead. As we continue to preview the year ahead in retail, there are a lot of trends that continue to pop up. However, one major topic of conversation we haven't breached just yet involves how retailers can best reach the 2023 consumer through communication and marketing. And here to discuss this topic and more is Richard Jones. He's the Chief Revenue Officer at Wonderkind. Wonderkind is, put simply, a firm that enables Retailers and brands to communicate more clearly with customers, but as he'll talk about, they do a lot more than that. Richard, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Trent. Good to
0: be here. Now, I gave a brief and likely incomplete introduction regarding Wonderkin. I was wondering if you could fill us in just kind of on the purpose of the company and then what you in particular do kind of on the day to day, just so our audience knows the context that you bring here to the conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Wonderkin has two main parts to its business it has a ads business that enables brand advertisers to build their audience with very kind ads when it comes to the user experience across a network of premium publishers and then that obviously drives traffic through to e-commerce brands sites and the second part of our business is basically enabling brands to unlock a new performance channel by better converting the traffic that hits their own channels into revenue. And we use things like our identity network, our on-site behavior technology, and our triggered messaging to actually do that. And what's very unique about that part of the business is we don't just sort of pretend and promise that there's value. We actually guarantee it. So our commercial frameworks are guaranteeing revenue uplift for CMOs and e-commerce brands.
0: All right. So obviously, you've got your finger on the pulse of this particular area, particularly as it pertains to brands and retailers. So we'll just kind of ask the first multi-billion dollar question here at a high level. How might we see ad spend maybe shift or change or marketing spend shift or change for retailers in 2023?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question because there's actually quite a lot going on. So I think sort of to answer that, I think we have to sort of step back and look at some of the headwinds in the industry and then figure out where things might go. And I'd kind of bucket those into sort of four kind of really serious trends that we see all at the moment. They've got changes, obviously, to Apple's mobile operating system, iOS, which has made the tracking and attribution of performance ads much more difficult, resulting in quite a lot of brands shifting more budget to actually brand building initiatives to compensate We also, secondly, have the cost of ads, particularly on social media channels like Facebook and Instagram, that have increased at a frightening clip over the last few years, resulting in higher customer acquisition costs, which is really impacting a lot of businesses' marketing models. And then thirdly, for the first time in a a decade or so, user growth and time on site on some of the leading performance marketing channels like Facebook have witnessed serious decline, including stalled reach on platforms like Instagram, for e-commerce and retail brands. And then lastly, because of these digital advertising pressures, we're seeing that marketers have been searching for new channels to drive performance marketing, looking to diversify as well as to lift brand advertising efficiencies. So, you know, those are some of the headwinds that we see. And, you know, there are obviously some areas of significant growth, but certainly in the digital advertising space, you know, TikTok alone can't soak up all of this demand for performance advertising. And it has its own regulatory threats in the US over concerns of the fact it's Chinese owned and what it means for national security. And we think that's going to play out in 2023. And who knows where that will actually end up. So, I think there is one big prediction about advertising, which I think is pretty interesting, given all of those headwinds. And it comes back to publishers. And publishers often haven't really been able to take advice, you know, they've been obviously on the, the sort of receiving end in a negative way often of the growth of things like Facebook and Instagram, you know, taking the lion's share of digital advertising budgets. And a lot of publishers haven't really had anywhere near the same growth. In fact, some of them have had a negative growth because of those trends. And one of the reasons is publishers have not been able to take advantage of these trends is that many brands want ad inventory that delivers the kind of engaging user experience for ads that they get with Instagram from a performance marketing perspective with all of the attribution, et cetera. And we've all been on publishers' sites and have just been, you know, annoyed at the interactive experience of ads loading on the page, you know, as we're trying to consume content. And so I think what we're going to see in 2023 is publishers really get to grips with that and deliver a range of really excellent advertising options that deliver great brand experiences to soak up some of that diversification of ad spend on digital that we're seeing with some of those headwinds that we talked about at the top of the call.
0: And there's a lot to unpack there, but I I wanted to kind of trace back to social media because you were mentioning, obviously, TikTok alone can't absorb some of the shift in ad spend that might be coming out of companies like Meta. What's the dynamic as far as social media ad spend and what we can expect going forward? Because I know a lot of people are talking about users and spend both kind of shifting away from Meta and shifting to other platforms.
1: Yeah, and you know, this is a trend that we're going to see, I think, continuing all the way through 2023. You know, one part is diversification, you know, there's been a huge concentration of ad spend in channels like Facebook and, and Instagram, and when things start to veer from a sort of constant stream of good news around those platforms for advertisers over the last 10 years that concentration of spend becomes a significant risk as you have things like stalled user growth and stalled decreasing time on site, et cetera, combined with the attribution tracking, reporting complexities with things like the changes in iOS. So you're gonna see some beneficiaries of that. Twitter has its own problems outside of this with advertising coming off those platforms for very different reasons, but the beneficiaries, you know, TikTok's obviously picked up an awful lot but the beneficiaries are also things like on connected TV. So we're going to see diversification outside of the traditional digital advertising rounds into other channels. And I think that diversification is really giving some level of insulation of security to some of these trends that we see that are impacting things like Facebook.
0: All right. So we get that trend of diversification happening. One of the other things that you mentioned, of course, is new channels. And you've discussed some of the traditional channels, especially as far as publishers are concerned and the like. But maybe what are some new channels or some channels that brands might jump into for the first time over the course of the next year?
1: You know, we've seen quite a lot of advertising shift to commerce platforms and partners like Amazon you know like Etsy look at everything's going on at Target Walmart etc and so i think we're going to see more and more of that as well so these non traditional channels which are really the marketplaces for goods are going to take up an increasing share of the overall ad spend you know funny enough we talk a little bit about the is this going to herald a golden age of buying the return of a golden age of of marketing here at Wonderkin because we've been in a very metrics focused world as digital advertising has really been at the fore of what everybody's doing and with this you know ability to deliver hyper personalized targeted ads at scale on platforms like Facebook with previously no impact ability to use things like third-party cookies and therefore leverage a whole tree of different data partners to be so granular with the targeting of ads at scale you know as that world starts to sort of dissipate you are seeing a return not just to the channels that people are using to drive their advertising, but also the format. So I mentioned about kind of the increase in more kind of brands led advertising and we're certainly seeing that so when i talk about the golden age of marketing are we actually moving back into more of a marketing world that's actually driven by creativity to deliver that kind of brand marketing you know i hope so as a marketer that's been around for a long time because it's good to see the return of creativity to the fore of kind of cmos plans
0: Boy, and you mentioned this creativity. This goes back to something that you discussed in the very beginning. You know, one of the principles surrounding Wonderkind is, of course, to create advertisements more or less that people want to interact with, that people want to see. It's not just a bombardment in terms of advertisers. So... I'll ask you this. What do customers want to see as far as ads in 2023? Because we've talked about the retail or brand perspective, but on the customer end, what are they thirsting for this coming year?
1: Yeah, so with advertising, you've always got this balance. You've got to walk this tightrope between privacy and personalization users on the one hand quite rightly there's a big push for not having their data kind of resold through an ecosystem when they haven't given explicit permission but at the same time we've seen from user research over the last year 18 months that they also want a personalized experience so that the ads are relevant to them now that's a tightrope we all have to walk the second piece that we see coming from consumers demands in terms of ads is they actually want to have experiences that respect what they're doing as a user. So typically, a lot of ads have been interruptive on many digital channels, particularly as I mentioned, publishers. And that, I think we're moving rapidly to a world where that's no longer really acceptable, and that brands themselves, not just consumers, but brands want to be associated with advertising that isn't interruptive, that is a great user experience. It's not just users showing their displeasure at more interruptive forms of advertising that are jarring to the experience that they're doing so if you take kind of just kind of what where we've gone with wonder kind ads and we call it kind ads for a reason is that typically if you think about that experience on landing on a publisher's site what we don't want to do is be like loading ads that sort of moving the article you're trying to read around right in the middle of you reading it you are kind of getting things popping up and being sort of very jarring What we want to do is use our on-site technology to evaluate what you're doing as a user and to look for those moments of disengagement with the actual content in order to deliver an ad in a more seamless way. For example, if I have shown that I'm scrolling down a page and it looks like I'm that engaged, I'm going to read the whole article. Well, at that point, maybe you can deliver an ad at the bottom of the page. So they finish the whole article, there you have the ad experience or perhaps they're looking like they're going to close a tab, you know, so they've shown they've already consumed the content, they're going to close the tab, then create a big, beautiful overlay that's an engaging ad. So it's looking for those moments to not be disruptive, but also to be contextual. So if they're reading something on a you know, particular subject, having ads that show up in that format that are also contextual to what that user was interested in in that moment. So I think walking that balance between privacy and personalization, walking that tightrope in terms of the user experience, this is where we're going to see more movement, both from brands and consumers, voting essentially with their clicks in terms of the ads they do engage with versus those they don't.
0: Some great insight there. And I want to turn our attention now to something else that has really come up. It's been a topic over the last five, six years, perhaps even longer, but we're seeing this addressed by consumers, this idea of communication fatigue. And I think we've all been in the same position of seeing three to four gray mail emails from the same retailers daily, sometimes an overkill on the SMS or messaging front in certain cases. How are the most effective brands leveraging email lists, leveraging SMS lists so they don't over communicate and maybe lose that communication channel via an opt out on the part of the consumer?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So. The trite answer is look at the data right, around engagement and unsubscribes, but that actually misses the point because the tactics that you use will define how much engagement consumers will actually want. So the deeper and more personalized the experiences that you offer when you connect with customers, the more likely they are to be happy to have more of it. So that's actually key in many ways to what we've been doing at Wondekin, which has been really since the inception, enabling e-commerce brands to understand more about the consumers that are visiting their own channels, using our identity network, using our on-site technology, and then to trigger one-to-one messages across things like email and text, as well as on-site experiences, That are tailored so perfectly for that individual that conversion rates are far higher than without our service. So it's definitely not simply about the amount of engagement. It's a question of the quality of engagement that will define the amount that a consumer will actually allow you with good conversion rates to field to them. If you think about it, that's just in text and email, whatever, across our own channels. We've been talking about ads. Think about that from an ads perspective. What are the reasons something like, Instagram could scale its ads so quickly over the last decade was because the experience of ads on that platform was far superior to what most digital ad experiences were like. Ads were beautiful and highly targeted and due to that users could stomach more of them without turning away from the platform. So getting that right balance between volume and quality in terms of the engagement is really where marketers should earn their crust.
0: And that's a great point to note there. It becomes more about what is in those messages and what is in those emails to ensure that people are actually interacting with them rather than tuning them out. So I'm also curious when it comes to this. Oftentimes these emails, these messages appear as part of a loyalty program. And this is one of the most powerful tools the retailers have at their disposal. Regardless of sector, we've seen a lot of positive impact that an effective loyalty program can have on sales. What should an effective loyalty program look like for the 2023 consumer?
1: Yeah. So, you know, firstly, obviously, let's state the obvious. Loyal shoppers are trusting brands, right, for cheaper product recommendations and incentives that are going to match their lifestyle and budget. So, that's one of the major draws of a loyalty program. You know, things like hassle-free returns in loyalty programs, et cetera, will be used to keep customers coming back in 2023. But if you actually look at the research around what consumers want from a loyalty program, it shows a slightly more complex picture. And there's a piece of research that's produced every year by actually Cheetah Digital with e-consultancy called the Consumer Trends Index. And that has clearly shown over the last few years that loyalty programs do actually need to evolve away from just sort of points for purchases and that kind of you know, discount mentality consumer expectations around what they value from a loyalty program are much more nuanced than that. You know, it's not all about wanting discounts. Increasingly, from that research, and they offer the same questions over multiple years, you can see it changing, increasingly the consumers are actually looking for loyalty programs to offer more things than just discounts. They're looking for exclusive content they're looking for unique experience they're looking for being able to engage in things like competitions and sweepstakes and to have early access to new products etc you know it's a tool to get rewarded for loyalty but also to get closer brand engagement and i certainly think in 2023 just delivering the more kind of points for purchase type loyalty program really will only get you so far if you're trying to deliver more revenue from your best customers You have to think about kind of that emotional loyalty and how you're supporting it through your loyalty program.
0: So we know that customers are asking for more than just discounts through the loyalty program. But we also know that the consumer in 2023 could be a bit more price conscious given everything that's happening on the macroeconomic level. And I'm curious what we're seeing now from retailers, from brands, as far as messaging surrounding price or value now that we're seeing maybe some pocketbooks tighten up a little bit with inflation,
1: yeah, 100%. I mean, it's, don't get me wrong, but price is going to be hugely important through the year. We see that in our consumer research. It's not about moving away from price, it's price and the emotional loyalty, it's price and the experience, it's price and the brand engagement. This is where, you know, fortunes are going to be won or lost in 2023.
0: Definitely sounds like the price part of it is essentially table stakes there, certainly. But you're looking to add value on top of just the price. I want to close out on this question here. As you look forward at the next 52 weeks, what excites you most about the world of marketing? What do you think is kind of on the frontier that you're excited to see play out in the next year?
1: Yeah, so I'll come back to innovation, I think, is the piece that I'm most excited about. And I mean it's very clear in any economic cycle, the most fertile ground for people actually being innovative with the business models that they operate in, the innovation in terms of customer engagement, customer messaging, innovation in terms of new products that are brought to market. It's always in a down cycle in the economy. And so, you know, for me as a marketer that is approaching 50 years old, next year you know this is my fifth recession you know i founded a company in the 28 29 recession that was a wonderful kind of period of my life to move through you can just see that with you know businesses having to reduce staff to shore up their cash balances etc to survive an economic downturn what effectively that does is it reduces the level of bureaucracy in companies for being able to try new things, to deliver change, to be innovative, to get things out to market. And I think my advice to anybody in marketing would be to take this opportunity of these weaker economic cycles to actually really be bullish and be aggressive about driving the change that you want to see, being fast to fail, but being very quick to embrace innovation, because this is the moment that that truly innovative things happen. And this is where companies have an opportunity to really set themselves up for fantastic growth in a stronger economic cycle that will come as we move out of recession. So it's definitely innovation.
0: All right. Well, fantastic insight here and certainly went just beyond that surface level on a number of topics as it pertains to marketing in the coming year. Richard, once again, we thank you for taking the time to join us today.
1: Thank you, Trent. Appreciate it. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not
0: invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We thank Richard for taking the time to join us. And in our final segment, our Looking Ahead segment, we dive into news that's broken over the last couple of weeks regarding larger retailers. The main one, Bed Bath & Beyond. They issued a statement doubting they could go forward as a going concern as things are structured now. And another report regarding Party City saying that they are expected to file bankruptcy within weeks. The initial report came out on January 5th, so... Hasn't yet happened as of the recording of this podcast, but they've engaged Alex Partners as a restructuring advisor. Obvious reasons to look ahead towards this story. Anytime you talk about a retail bankruptcy, you know the number of larger firms that declared bankruptcy did kind of take a, a tilt down in 2022. As you saw, retail rebound a little bit coming out of the pandemic. But when you look at retailers that could reasonably expect it to experience financial issues during the course of the pandemic, Party City would probably be tops of the list because gatherings were limited. You would think that maybe with 2022 more gatherings occurring, people would come back to Party City. But again, they serve a subset of the population, a subset that's looking to have larger gatherings, larger parties that can easily pick up the same merchandise at general merchandise stores or even dollar stores that are more price competitive basically the lowdown on party city is they've got 1.7 billion dollars worth of debt on their balance sheet they've got a 32.8 million dollar interest payment due february 15th there is some doubts as to whether they will be able to make that interest payment and overall their market capitalization there in terms of their stock has dipped below $50 So some of these interest payments are more than the entire market capitalization of the company on the stock market. So obviously, a bit of a negative there for Party City, who was a retailer that was more or less stagnating before the pandemic. You would get an up quarter and then a down quarter. They did have somewhat of a brick-and-mortar growth plan in place. They built out their e-commerce platform a little bit more before the pandemic. But obviously, pandemic impacts. Certainly have hindered them. Regarding Bed Bath & Beyond, they released earnings for their quarter ending November 26th, and they were putrid. There's no other way to put it. Comp sales declines of 32% across their company. Comps were down 34% at Bed Bath & Beyond. They declined in the low 20% range at Bye Bye Baby. Now, a lot of the blame went to the lack of stock. And something that we've heard a lot from Bed Bath & Beyond about over the last year, and I even touched on it prior to Christmas, was the fact that they were having a difficult time sourcing inventory and getting inventory into their stores. A lot of this was thought to be, and said to be, a function of supply chain issues that were hindering everyone worldwide. But now, as we get out of Those supply chain crunches that we saw in late 2021 and early 2022, as supply chains begin to normalize a little bit more, at least whatever the new normal is, throughout the globe, you begin to wonder if Bed Bath & Beyond isn't experiencing a similar type of effect that major toy retailers actually have seen prior to declaring bankruptcy. You think back to the early 90s when Children's Palace declared bankruptcy, overall the Main catalyst to that was their inability to get merchandise on shelves because they didn't have liquidity and their vendors weren't willing to extend them credit because of the poor financial performance of the company. That resulted in one holiday season them stocking many fewer toys than they had in previous holiday seasons, which of course tanked their revenue and led directly to their bankruptcy. It seems as though that same cycle is playing out with Bed Bath & Beyond after it played out to some extent with Toys R Us, in fact, in recent years. And we can say, oh, well, hey, Bed Bath & Beyond, they're just falling victim more than others to these supply chain issues. But the reality of it is comps were down by over 20% at Bye Bye Baby as well. And we've not heard from many apparel retailers, especially later in 2022, as well as retailers that sell baby gear, that they've had issues with sourcing or at least issues outside of what other retailers are experiencing. And this leads me and some others to believe that perhaps the sourcing issues and the fact that their inventory is down, in some cases their in-stock position, is down over 70% in some categories year over year. This could be because vendors maybe don't want to extend credit or just don't want to give Bed Bath & Beyond first crack at merchandise when they could give the first crack at merchandise to other more effective retailers. I mentioned in my visit to a Bed, Bath and Beyond store just before Christmas that again the stores were empty but very, very adequately staffed. Obviously, that's not a recipe for financial wellness and financial well-being. Now the associates in that store were very, very helpful and were trying to basically suggest alternative items where they were out of stocks. One particular was I was told by an associate that there were no knife blocks to be had for sale in their entire system basically, which is again, notable and again, a product of that supply chain issue, whether that's caused by Bed Bath & Beyond themselves basically, or whether that's caused by things outside of their control. So between Party City and Bed Bath & Beyond, the reason to look ahead is very simple. You've got a lot of retail real estate in some cases in Class A centers, but in most cases, especially with Party City in Class B centers, a lot of retail real estate that's going to be vacant potentially if these companies can't pull through. And there's no guarantee that either will pull through if either declares bankruptcy. Of course, it's entirely possible that someone buys up either or and keeps them going as a retailer. But we have to prepare ourselves for the likelihood that that may not happen, and a stalking horse bid by a liquidation firm could be the winning bid for one or both of these companies. And we don't know specifically if Bed Bath & Beyond will go the bankruptcy route, but it certainly does appear as though they're headed that way. With Party City, all reports indicate that bankruptcy is pretty well imminent for them. So obviously some big stories to look ahead to in 2023 regarding these retailers that some would call niche retailers that maybe saw effects from the pandemic and all of the trickle-down effects there. But moreover, you really have to ask questions about recent leadership at both companies, whether leadership did everything that they could do to put these companies in a great position. I think we've covered on this show that Mark Tritton, certainly we We're a big believer in him at first, but that turnaround plan just took too much time. They alienated too many customers in doing things and getting things done there. Likewise, at Party City, it doesn't appear leadership has put them in the best possible position to succeed. And A retail company needs great leadership at this time because undifferentiated retail... That's not good retail at this point. And there's a lot of pressures on retailers. And unless you have great leadership at the helm, not just good or adequate leadership, but great leadership at the helm, you're going to be lost in the shuffle. And that could be what we're dealing with, with these two major retailers. Well, that'll do it for us on this week's show. Once again, we want to thank Wonderkind and Richard Jones for joining us on the show. We'll be back seven days from now with more retail news and notes and Also, a lot of great earnings calls to look forward to as we start to get more substantial holiday numbers in from just those first weekend numbers that we talked about on the show a few weeks ago. We're looking forward to it, and we hope you have a great next week. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.